Welcome to Inside and Beyond podcast, where we explore capabilities of the human mind and the nature of reality. I'm your host, Natalia Fomichenko. My guest today is Justin Townsend, a CEO and head facilitator at Myco Meditations, a psilocybin retreat in Jamaica. Throughout his business career, Justin has worked as a business leader and advisor to companies, yet he has been on his personal quest to explore alternative healing methods to combat his own anxiety and depression. After attending a retreat with Micro Meditations back in 2017, he saw a unique opportunity to combine his business skills with his interest in alternative healing. Justin believes that psychedelics is an exciting path forward for mental health. Justin, welcome to the show. It's so nice to have you here. Good morning, Natalia. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for coming. It's really, really exciting to have you here. So let's start from the beginning. You run a retreat called Micro Meditations in Jamaica. How come that you do it? What has your journey been up until now? And why essentially you are doing what you're doing? Okay. So Micro Meditations is a psilocybin-assisted therapy retreat, as you said, based here in Jamaica in the Caribbean. We are a Western contemporary therapeutic model. So how did I come to be the CEO? Um, I have a 25-year corporate career history. Um, mm -hmm. If you looked on LinkedIn, that's what you would have seen up until a few years ago. And I didn't really come out of the psychedelic closet until 2017, 2018. And yet my history with psychedelics goes back well, my first experience in my teens with mushrooms, um, noticed, you know, scared myself a few times, noticed also that it had a positive effect on my anxiety and depression. Uh, mm -hmm. Fast forward, my first ayahuasca experience in the year 2000, continuing to work with ayahuasca as part of the European underground psychedelic network. Uh, we mm -hmm. were flying in medicine men and medicine women and great clinicians as well from all over the place, but very much part of the underground. And so I had what you may call um, a very loose apprenticeship, working with more indigenous models to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, I developed a holotropic breathwork practice in parallel to that. I ended up teaching it and then facilitating on breathwork retreats over long weekends. And so these were two very disparate paths in parallel, and they crossed it in 2017. I joined Micromeditation then as an advisor and mm -hmm. then went on to become CEO of the company. and. Uh, uh, I run the company with my business partner, Mike. That's super interesting and also so familiar when you have certain passion on the side and then you're doing your corporate work and then when mm. it merges, I guess that's the sweet spot. I love the wave sound on the background, by the way. <laughs> you can hear it. It's them, really yeah. beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's not something I have, have to ask Alexa to play at night because we just <laughs> have it naturally. That's beautiful. Let's talk about people who come and do retreats like that what sort of challenges they come with and how psilocybin might help them okay so by the end of this year we are on track to have worked with 2000 guests and administered mm -hmm. 6000 doses of psilocybin wow. um in in that period and we track a lot of our data which i can talk about later if you'd like some of the outcomes mm -hmm. that we get here so the majority of our guests are well, the age range spans from early 20s all the way through to late 80s, as long as they're physically fit and sound and mm -hmm. fine. Uh, the majority of our guests are 
between late 30s through early 70s, uh, mm-hmm. 50-50 mix of male and female. Um, majority of our guests come here solo, but generally on each retreat we'll have a couple or um, a brother-sister relationship, brother-brother, parent, adult-child relationship. So mm-hmm. what do they come for? So we are we work in specifically in the field of mental health. There are other mm-hmm. retreats that work with sort of side that are more wellness oriented, and that's fine. That's a different business than, than we're in. Nevertheless, we do have guests that come and they don't particularly have mental health issues, but maybe they're a bit stuck in life. Maybe they're recently divorced. Maybe they're considering a career change, or they've recently mm-hmm. retired and are asking themselves, "What now?" So there's mm-hmm. those that those that come for maybe not specific mental health reasons. But those that come with mental health reasons and issues, um, we're looking at treatment-resistant depression or major depressive disorder, uh, anxiety mm-hmm. in all its forms from end-of-life anxiety. So somebody's received a terminal diagnosis, they've got two or three mm. years left to live. Uh, that's often comorbid with depression and anxiety as well and a host of other factors. Uh, social anxiety. We treat people, a lot of people with PTSD, um, be it veterans or be it you know, I'd say about 40% of our guests have had some kind of childhood sexual abuse as well. And mm. so um, Ronald Griffiths um, of Johns Hopkins said that psilocybin has what he calls trans-diagnostic advocacy. And that means mm-hmm. that it's impactful for so many different mental health conditions. And uh, so I guess that sums up the sort of the range of who we see down here. And yet, you mm-hmm. know, it's all the secondary things. There's alcoholism, there's eating disorders. That's quite primary in some cases. But what we see, you know, people may come and also have something like a migraine issue, and we see their migraines mm. clear up. Uh, I had a woman on retreat two weeks ago that was here for some completely other condition, but she hadn't been able to sweat for about 10 years. And so her body had a problem cooling off. She had to drink mm-hmm. a lot of fluids, pee a lot, this kind of thing. And she just noticed at the end of the retreat, wow, I'm able to sweat again. So it has all these secondary mm. and tertiary benefits wow. that we're not we're not targeting or even identifying, but seem to arise. Um, there's also a very clear link between depression and inflammation. So we have mm-hmm. people come down with a lot of uh, depression, but then also a variety of different polyrheumatoid arthritic conditions. And so mm. they're very surprised and happy when, when not only does their depression begin to clear up, but pain they've had in their hands and their body for decades goes away. And that's particularly poignant when you're working with a veterinarian or a professional musician, and they're considering retiring because they can't play anymore or operate anymore, and then all of a sudden they've got feeling and movement back in their hands mm-hmm. and no pain. So there's many, many other secondary benefits really? that come from psilocybin. Yeah, it's quite fantastic to see. Wow, it, it sounds fantastic indeed. So it's not only for mental health, but for physical health. And actually, I have something similar in my own experience. I didn't do a retreat, but I occasionally do a psychedelic experience with psilocybin. And um, the last time I did it, it was very interesting. I've been not suffering, but it has been bothering me for a while, like my lower back pain. And suddenly after the experience, I had this realization that I should do a different posture of the body when I walk. And I suddenly realized that I have been walking with kind of leaning a little bit backwards. And I suddenly realized that if I correct the the center of gravity, then it will go away. I don't know where the thought came from, but when I adjusted this, I I haven't had this issue for for like up until now. And this is crazy. That's why I'm I'm very, very amazed and excited about the true impact of psychedelics. 
But the question is, how exactly they work? How do they change our brain or bodies in the way that we can experience such profound changes? Okay. So a lot of science has been done, but there's still a lot that we do not know about psychedelics and their impact on the brain, uh, the psyche, consciousness, and on, on our physical bodies. What I'm going to share with you is what's been discovered in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, mm -hmm. And even that is evolving as more science is done, okay? So none of what I'm about to say right now is absolutely written in stone, but it seems to infer the direction in which things are going. So um, on, an, on a neurological level alone, um, the consumption of therapeutic doses of psilocybin um, leads to heightened cognitive plasticity. That means our brains become mm -hmm. more malleable. Now, what does that mean in real life? It means that, you know, we've all bought books and read books about how to change your habits, but we all know how hard it is to do so, right? Um, when yeah. you have, during the week here, three doses of psilocybin, that heightened cognitive plasticity and neuroplasticity remains for about six to eight weeks. And that means mm -hmm. that when you go home, if you've identified within yourself some maladaptive behaviors or um, ways of looking at the world that are a bit limited, um, when you go back home, it's much easier to reframe the world and, and lay down new behaviors. So that's the mm -hmm. neural cognitive plasticity piece. I suppose that one of the core pieces is that's, that's identified is that we have a, a construct in our brain that's called the default mode network. Um, yeah. This is basically where the scientists believe our sense of self resides, our ego self. Um, many of us have an overactive default mode network. Um, and it tends to come online often when we're not doing something that's task-focused. So you may be lying in bed at night, the cover's up to your chin, and you're trying to sleep, but your mind is full of this chatter all related to yeah. you, right? And if you're anxious, that can lead to catastrophic thinking and chronic worry and, and recriminating with what you've done and said in the past and worrying about the future. Mm -hmm. Um and if you're depressed, an overactive default mode network can lead to very uh, deep rumination as well. And so another example might be you've had, you're having a busy day at the office, you want to go outside and lay in the park under a tree, have some peace and quiet, and yet that internal chatter never stops, right? What about that email I have to answer? What about that client? What about the groceries? What about the kids? And so the when you take a therapeutic dose of psilocybin, um, basically – it resets what's called your default mode network. Now, the default mode yep. network comprises uh, the frontal cortex, hippocampus, amygdala, various other cortices, all of which are responsible for things like uh, future planning, past recall, uh, emotional regulation in the case of the amygdala. So you can imagine that mm -hmm. when this is reset, um, there's quite a substantial change in the mind with regards to inner chatter. Um, mm -hmm. So that's the default mode network aspect around this. That's just neurological. If you look at the psychological impact of a journey um, itself, it takes sometimes a lot of courage to enter these spaces. Um, yeah, we can, what, what, one of the key mediators of psilocybin, and there are three, one of them is cognitive insights. Um, that means that you may get insights into particular aspects of your behavior that maybe began through a traumatic event in childhood or through neglectful parenting styles mm -hmm. of your parents Maybe you internalized a narrative about yourself that wasn't healthy and you carry this into adult life and it's restricting how you navigate the world, it's restricting how you interact with people and so on and so forth. It myriad impacts. Yep. Um, 
And so you can get cognitive insights. It might, you may recall that time when mum or dad shamed you for a particular behavior that wasn't appropriate in their eyes or they yelled at you about mm-hmm. something or even raised a hand and physically hit you. Um, you've maybe lost the original memory of that, but this can come back to you uh, later in life. Yeah. So that's the cognitive insights piece. Um, the other mediator is the emotional breakthrough. So um, psilocybin is known as an ab reactive, and that simply means that it can bring that which has the most emotional charge within you to the surface for processing. Mm-hmm. Now, most of us don't like to have uncomfortable feelings. We have a habit of distracting ourselves from them or actively suppressing them. Yeah. And they become repressed. They don't just disappear into the ether. Um, there's a very good book about trauma called uh, The Body Keeps the Score. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and what yeah, that speaks to is when we go through traumatic events, um, our body will hold on to the physiological and emotional response to those events. And what that can lead to um, is a lot of our vitality being drained just by keeping a lid on all this material that our psyche doesn't want us to look at or that we don't want mm-hmm. to feel. Um, leads to maladaptive behaviors. Um, we can end up in patterns of abusive relationships. We can end up with drug and alcohol addiction, this kind of thing. So um, when we um, have psilocybin, it, it can cause catharsis, which is the processing mm-hmm. of these repressed emotions that have been limiting our lives. And actually, the more repressed we are, the more emotionally rigid we tend to become as well as we as we develop over the decades. And so mm-hmm. the second piece is the emotional breakthrough. Now, an example of that might be I had an Indian chap down here uh, whose father died 20, 25 years ago. He numbed himself. He didn't allow himself to feel his emotions. 20, 25 years later, he's here. And on the first dose, that's what happened for him. He had all the memories, happy memories from childhood. And then he was able to process this river of grief that came out of him that he'd been holding on to for uh, 20 years plus. Mm -hmm. Um, The final piece of the, or the third mediator, if you like, is what's called the mystical experience. And so when we take a therapeutic dose of psilocybin, our sense of ego and our boundaries in the world dissolve, okay? Mm -hmm. And this opens us up to a sense of uh, of a noetic experience, um, in some cases a religious, spiritual sense with this as well. You don't have to be religious to have a mystical or spiritual experience. And I've seen mm-hmm. even the most hardcore material reductionist scientists have their worldviews completely shifted um, through powerful peak experiences with psychedelics as well. And the reason why the mystical experience is important is because what the science is showing, and there's about seven or eight current existing studies, and there are many more studies from the 60s, is that if you have a mystical experience, um, the long-term psychological outcomes are so much better. And so that, yep. that third aspect, the mystical experience, is key as well. That's incredible. So many uh, benefits to mm-hmm. what you're doing. I guess psilocybin is not the only tool that you can use. Um, we have actually talked about default mode network with another guest of mine, um, Tom Gallia, in the previous episodes. And he uses light in order to trigger the change in default mode network. So we have discussed this extensively with him as well. And I also, from my own experience, I am a coach and uh, throughout the therapy or coaching journey, the client also sometimes gains insights and understands their feelings that have been suppressed, as you say, uh, throughout their lives. So I guess 
from what I'm hearing, the key difference between doing psilocybin versus other tools would be that psilocybin experience is much more, is much bigger, I guess, is flooding into your mind and you kind of have to deal with everything that comes out at once. How safe is it for people? Okay. Um, I'll talk about, uh, there are times if we are very repressed and a lot's happened in our lives and we haven't been in therapy to address any of that, that yes, mm-hmm. a lot can come out in a short space of time. Um, yep. But our model and our retreat teams, um, we are, the constellation of our team is, is most of my team are predominantly um, licensed therapists, uh, trauma-informed the psychologists. We have a psychiatrist on team. And so mm-hmm. um, this material, whether it comes out slowly, gradually, or suddenly and immediately, um, it's worked with our therapists and working with the clients to help them make sense of it, to integrate it um, into their lives. And the integration piece is a core part of uh, the therapeutic approach that we take down here as well and continues uh, for some weeks after our guests leave. Uh, many of our guests are already working with therapists and, we'll, and we'll, they will find that when they return, there's a lot of new material for them to um, work over with their therapists. And in many cases, those that are working with psychologists and psychiatrists uh, were often told that a complete, because they've changed so much for the better, that a completely new um, psych evaluation is required to assess that. Now, as to how we can switch off the default mode network or reduce its activity, psilocybin versus say meditation or light or other ways um i would say that you know what i get told by many of my therapists and i'm not a therapist is that the kind mm-hmm. of material that we get to access down here um would typically not often you know for those kind of defenses to come down to give you access to that material in a typical clinical environment back home in the west can mm-hmm. often take years decades yeah. if it ever happens at all and so the default mode network coming offline means that both uh, our conscious resistance and a lot of our unconscious resistance comes offline as well. That's what allows this material to surface. Um, mm-hmm. But meditation and light can all help with reducing this activity. Um, back in 10, 2010, 2012, a lot of the early science around the MRI imaging and fMRI said, well, when you take these therapeutic doses, the brain lights up like a Christmas tree. And that's yep. actually not the case. It was misinterpretation. Um, oh, if anything, what they see, yeah, what they see is there is a reduced brain activity. The default mm. mode network is coming offline. Other parts of the brain have substantial reductions in brain activity. Yes, there are lots of new interconnections made. Parts of the brain that haven't spoken before or haven't communicated that well begin to communicate again. Uh, but on the whole, it's more indicative of a reduction in brain activity that allows us to have these types of experiences. So how safe is it? Um, you know, there's the, let's talk about the concept of a challenging trip versus, say, a bad trip, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, a challenging trip, um, if you have been through some kind of trauma, and we've had people here that have survived plane crashes, um, have been through sexual abuse, people that have witnessed murders of their family members happening in front of them, and all, all manner of types of horrendous trauma. Yep. Um, and so um, processing this Trauma is key, and you need to do it in a very safe and protective environment with very experienced and well-trained people. How does a bad trip happen? You may be going to a concert, and let's just take the stereotypical break you did, right? You may stop at the bar on the way there, have a few pints before you Mm -hmm. go in, meet your friend, go into the concert. There's 20,000 people. There's loud music. 
and somebody offers you a bag of mushrooms and it's your first experience and you take mm-hmm. those mushrooms and a couple of things can happen. The ego starts to dissolve and you think you're dying in the process and or long repressed um, traumatic material may start to arise. Okay. And uh, the person will go into a panic. So that's a con that, that's a, that's a feature of both bad set, which is a mindset mm-hmm. and not being educated and prepared and informed and a bad setting which is the environment that you're in, okay? So mm-hmm. set the setting have to be aligned and set up before you take a dose. A challenging trip may be, as I mentioned earlier, when we go through traumas, our body holds on to the physiological and emotional response. And oftentimes through a mechanism called disassociative amnesia, the memories of that traumatic event, because we disassociate, mm-hmm. are relegated to the unconscious mind and they're largely not available, if at all, to our conscious mind, okay? Mm-hmm. It's like almost like a defensive mechanism. And so a challenging session may be that you'll, it's not so much you have to relive your trauma, but you may have to re-experience and process your body's first physiological or emotional responses. And at the same time, um, aspects of, of memories of that event happening to you may begin to come back as well. That's often mm-hmm. not just accompanied by the memories. It's the physical, emotional response to what's going on. Sometimes the nervous system can convulse while it's releasing. Um, I've often have guests tell me that they can smell the alcohol on the breath of the person that's abusing them, this kind of thing. And mm. so there's many, many dimensions that make up that process. But I say that's a challenging um, aspect. It's not a bad trip. Um, that constitutes a lot of what we work with down here. And so what's unsafe is to go into medicine sessions uninformed and alone. Mm-hmm. Um, not treating this as a powerful substance and then maybe unraveling or coming apart at the scenes, at the, 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 the scenes. And, um, that can lead to uh, a lot of bad trips and bad experiences. Yeah. Thank you for that. So I guess to summarize this, we need to ensure the right set and setting. And mm-hmm. ideally when we are on retreat and especially if it's our first experience, having a team of integration therapists and uh, medical professionals around definitely helps. What about the group aspect of doing the retreats like that? Is it also beneficial in some way or not really? Oh, it's it's beneficial on a number of different levels. Um, So the group aspect is key. I mean, on average, our retreat sizes are between 10 to 12 people. We have a very high ratio of team members uh, to guests. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody is primed when they get here, our guests to talk as openly, um, as possible. And there'll be four key questions, three or four key questions, such as we want to know at the beginning, um, what was your childhood like? What was your relationship to your parents or caretakers like? Um, a- any major events that have happened in your life that you're willing to talk about, even though it's uncomfortable. Um, and then what are your intentions and hopes for this week? And generally, um, a lot of ground gets covered um, in that period of time. What that creates, first of all, is everybody is sharing is a very tight bond between the guests. Mm-hmm. Everybody starts to root for each other. And often what the guests learn about each other is a lot more than even our guests, loved ones and close friends would know about. It's a safe environment to share. Mm-hmm. The art of group therapy, because it's our lead therapists that lead the group therapy, is that as we are doing our group integration therapy, okay, is to tease the experience, more the experience out of that particular guest um, to work with the dynamic and tension in the room because it can be emotional, right? Um, some people may withdraw, some will lean in, some are very relaxed. They can be upset in tears. 
sort of work with that dynamic intention, then ultimately to um, use what the guest is talking about to illuminate the rest of the guests mm. about certain perspectives on their own narratives and their own mental health journeys. And so that group is key. Um, and you learn so much more as a guest. Um, and so that's the art of, of doing group therapy and why we do it. But as you look at the industry moving forward, um, it's probably going to be one of the go-to models because as we looked at what MAPS did, right, with MDMA therapy, and mm-hmm. we're seeing the cost of that projected into Australia right now, there's going to be a bit of a lag time before insurers come on board. Even then, um, the model, the medical model looks something like one or two therapists or a minimum one therapist and one assistant for something like seven to eight hours just during the dose alone with one patient. That becomes very expensive very quickly. Um, I've mm-hmm. seen MDMA therapy at 20 to 30,000 US dollars. We know that what's arising out of Oregon right now is, is one individual psilocybin session starts at 3,000 US dollars in some cases because the overhead is mm-hmm. so high. And so group therapy really allows for that scale of economies to kick in um, and make it more cost effective for insurers and out of pocket payers. But also it's an incredibly therapeutic therapy as well. I think what's for many therapists come to this, that they're used to the very, they're used to all the limitations of the existing therapeutic modalities. And so, you know, but we, what we have to address with these powerful experiences is on one level, what people will experience will be very personal. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there are certain therapeutic modalities that you have to, that you can apply to that, whether it's integrating parts of ourselves, whether it's helping to moderate behavior or certain disproportionate emotional responses to triggers mm-hmm. in the world. Um, but there's, you know, big philosophical questions sometimes that come out of these experiences, big cosmological questions that can come out of this. There is such a wide range of um, experience that you can have that being well equipped to provide frameworks of understanding to our guests is really mm-hmm. quite an important part of the role as well. Of course. And since we are talking about investment, what is the average investment that a person needs to do to come to your retreat, for instance? Okay, so we have three different price points um, and they've been separated into classic, which is our more rustic Jamaican retreat style. That's mm-hmm. a lower end. Um, a shared room on a, on a classic retreat is likely to be upwards of $4,500 for seven days. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all-inclusive um, minus the flight. So that's all the psilocybin therapy, the doses, the accommodation, the food, the massages, this kind of thing. The next price point is our, is our comfort level, um, on average about $7,000 and upwards, whether it's a single room uh, or shared. And then our concierge retreats um, are the higher level of retreat. Um, going north of $11,000 for the week, all the mm-hmm. way up to 23000 for a shared room. Um, and nothing about the quality of the um, therapy or how we do things changes. The team ratios remain the same. All yep. that changes in that really is is what comfort. quality of accommodation, comfort, food, etc. Yep. you like to have. Yeah, that's great. I would like to come back to the spiritual and cosmological aspects because you mentioned a while ago that Essentially, on psilocybin, our uh, brain sort of subsides and shuts down, yet we have very vivid and bright experiences. So it almost means that the brain, uh, the functioning of the brain per se, is not a predicament for us having very alive experiences, which is something that we have discussed also with another guest of Mm -hmm. mine, uh, a specialist on near-death experiences in previous episode that 
essentially it might mean that our brain is some sort of receiver of the information out there. And when it subsides, then we have almost more access to the larger reality out there. Uh, what mm -hmm. do you think about this hypothesis? Okay, so having worked a lot with psychedelics and have, having had many peak experiences and, and all manner of experience and having worked with hundreds, if not thousands of guests, I yes, we are a science and research and evidence-based model in how we mm -hmm. approach this. Um, what I don't have much influence on is the material that comes up with people and the nature of that material and, and how they may choose to interpret it. So believe mm -hmm. you me, I have been down many rabbit holes in the last 20 years looking to understand the nature of these mystical experiences and all the other types of things that can happen from what seems to be like part, very vivid and real, as if I'm here with you right now, past life experiences to dead relatives showing up. Um, to lots of heightened synchronicities going on. Um, I think the hard question of consciousness is going to remain elusive for a while. Um, yes, I think the default mode network shutting down temporarily gives us access to so much more of understanding of what the nature of reality is that we don't get to experience with our five senses. The way I see that is that um, reality is a dashboard. And it's just like when you fly a plane and you have dials for wind speed and temperature. Well, imagine that you were only flying by instruments. That mm -hmm. instrument might represent wind and that might represent um, ambient temperature, but it's not reality. It's only a dashboard of reality. Yeah. Okay? It's almost like a desktop, so, right? Where you exactly. have folders, but it's not exactly, exactly a folder. And, mm -hmm. and so when the visual senses and hearing senses and other senses come offline, just to a certain degree, we get exposed to so much more of what reality is. Um, so I think that's going on. Um, it's also noted that if you look at people that have had, that have, say, later on in life, something will happen and they'll have savant-like abilities, be it mm -hmm. through a traumatic brain injury or through an illness. Um, often you see that brain activity has been shut down permanently and it's then allowing these savant-like abilities, be it yep. mathematics, music, to come forth. Um, mm -hmm. I think... I could say potentially this is available to everyone, but it hasn't been selected for in a evolutionary survival perspective. Being a savant of mathematics or art or music doesn't lead to um, survive any more survivability potentially. So that's why mm -hmm. we don't all get access to it at all times. For me, um, I'm observing there's an increase in what's called panpsychism. Um, mm -hmm. um, evolving in the psychedelic space as people are having more and more experiences and the concept of panpsychism is ancient that, and it states that consciousness basically resides in everything around us and just like water can occupy many vibrational states it is, it's, it's here in the humidity in the air around me right now in Jamaica but I can't see it or really feel it right? Mm -hmm. You know that there's fluid water, ice, steam condensation etc this is where the panpsychism direction is going and as a matter of fact there's a more modern interpretation that of that by a philosopher a metaphysical philosopher called Bernardo Castro yeah. he alludes to this as analytical idealism idealism um, yeah. and yeah and I think that's more in line with what I witness at least and experience with psychedelics um, mm -hmm. but I have to be I would say I'm at this point I'm radically agnostic I'm not going to mm -hmm. pin 
a map in any particular place and say that's it. Because over the years, I've discovered that as science discovers more, what seems to be supernatural becomes natural and yeah. self-evident and obvious. So for me, the jury's out. What I am interested in, though, is um, the techniques that work, that allow people to bring people healing. And so that's where I focus, and that's why I remain some, somewhat radically agnostic. And yet, many of our guests come here because they want to be re-enchanted with nature and the world again and the mystery of life. And many have a very impoverished view of life, right? They were raised that way. They've, they live in cities, and it's all about being on the grind. And so I think psilocybin especially is very good at helping people reconnect with the enchantment of the natural world and the mystery of what we exist within. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's interesting what you've mentioned on whether or not it is required for survival. And yes, looking on the evolution, it is not really required to have a high level of consciousness and have access mm. to paranormal thing. But if we take another perspective, as in if our purpose on this earth is to somehow increase the quality of our consciousness in order to progress throughout whatever reality levels mm. we have out there, then having access to those higher abilities to do something artsy or something supernatural may mm. help us progress and also may help us inspire others and lead others. So it almost sounds like that it's not given for granted as pure survival mechanism, but only when your level of consciousness is ready to, to have it okay. in a way. And that's something that I've also discussed with another guest of mine, uh, Tom Campbell. Um, and I feel like it all falls into, uh, you know, into right pieces, but I agree with you. It's very difficult to pinpoint the right way of uh, what consciousness is and what reality is. Yeah. I would add to that as well is that as you look at all the, the latest research, especially on the left and right brain hemispheres, okay, mm -hmm. we, we have become in the West, we've industrialized very quickly relative to our history. Technologically, we've advanced so much, and that's really led to a lot of left hemisphere domination of how we see the world, which mm -hmm. is very in a very mechanistic fashion. The left hemisphere likes to label, categorize, compartmentalize, and have answers and, and meaning, or uh, well, maybe not meaning. And so when you see something that's new, your, your left hemisphere, hemisphere goes, okay, that's something that looks like this that I'm familiar with and does that. I'm going to put it in this categorical box. Mm -hmm. Whereas, and so we can often become um, very focused on the mechanistic, independent things in life, the individual mm -hmm. things we're looking at. And yet the right hemisphere tends to see the collective of everything and the whole, mm -hmm. right? And so many of us are stuck in this mechanistic left hemisphere worldview and lose mm -hmm. sight of the whole and how everything comes together. So yeah. maybe that's a symptom of how we are developing anyway in the West and somewhat to some degree in the East, you know. Um, and so this right hemisphere, I think there'll be a natural balancing over time. Mm -hmm. um, is the meaning and purpose of life um, to allow us as human beings to develop our conscious awareness, to lead to a, a better life for everyone? I don't know whether I define that as the meaning and purpose because I think that we are part of nature we arise out of nature and nature is amoral self-awareness that we have as human beings has only come into play in the last thirty thousand years um do i believe that the evolutionary um machinery and architecture by behind everything 
is leading us towards this. I don't think it's, I, I don't, it seems like it is, but I'm not going to say that it's, it's designed to be that way. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just yeah. a natural process that we're going through. Yeah, it's interesting about left and right hemisphere. Another way to look at this is left hemisphere is more rational thinking and understanding mm-hmm. reasons and consequences of things. And right hemisphere is more intuitive. And when we mm-hmm. talk about any paranormal thing or any conscious insights that we often have, uh, especially on psychedelics, it's all about intuition. So it's almost opening up that part of the brain. And when we also talk about those instances when people received abilities that they didn't have before after certain experiences, it also sort of comes intuitively. You cannot really connect the the reason why it has appeared in their brain this way, right? It's it's all intuitive. And yeah. to me it seems that all of these experiences of developing consciousness is about developing your intuition really and this is the the sense that is is very important for understanding the reality as is but it is contradicting the science as we know because the science as we know is very objective is very logical and Mm -hmm. probably this is one of the reasons why science cannot still explain certain paranormal things yeah and and Another dimension to look at this from beyond the hemispheres is there's a well-known Jungian analyst called uh, Jim Hollis, James Hollis, and he talks about the difference between the adaptive self, which you could mm-hmm. say relates more to the ego, the executive, um, and the left hemisphere, versus everybody has a natural self as well. And you see the natural self is more predominant in indigenous native peoples. They are spontaneous. They're intuitive just like nature is, right? And nature mm-hmm. is self-correcting. And what often happens in life is that we um, become our adaptive selves and we don't pay heed to our natural selves. That can mm-hmm. often in the mid part of life, you know, you, you spent your, your life carving out your career, carving out a place, getting married, having kids. You've got the, the house on top of the hill with the white picket fence. It's nice and safe and secure. Mm-hmm. I've arrived but the natural self, that instinctive urge to have a call to adventure, to go and leave it all behind, to go and do something else, is often something that we wrestle with. And I'm mm-hmm. not for one moment suggesting that we abandon everything, but um, there has to be a way of allowing that natural self to emerge, even in the second half of life, and, and to have its needs met and fulfilled. Um, otherwise, we can become very rigid, and I don't think, you know, it was said that human beings aren't really built for all this security. And the mm-hmm. well-known philosopher, psychologist Kierkegaard said of humanity that if all we did was just sat around and ate cake and procreated the species, we'd soon get bored and we'd create our own challenges and chaos. And so I think one of the sicknesses, if you like, that's plaguing society is the fact that the adaptive ego self has taken hold we are grasping on and holding on to everything we have. And in that process, the natural self is not allowed to emerge and bring that sense of balance to everything. So that's another dimension. Yeah. That's interesting. From as well. yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. And uh, the key thing is balance here. And you mentioned two mm-hmm. selves, but there is lots of research that shows that each and every one of us has actually many selves within. Mm-hmm. And those selves are almost like 
independent beings, not just a set of qualities that you have. Like when I go to a party, I'm this type of self with this set of quality. And if I am at work, I'm a different self with this set of qualities. So it goes beyond that. It's almost like independent beings are taking over control over your body. And sometimes it happens unconsciously and we don't really know sometimes why we did certain things that we that we did. And I guess the key here is, yes, balance of the cells, but this balance can only stem from awareness of what's going on. And right. I guess building this conscious awareness of what's happening inside of you is really key. And the experiences like that definitely help doing that. Yeah. And as you talk about these different parts, I mean, that's developed over a hundred plus years of psychoanalytical theory. What we, the way we most see that represented these days is there's a therapeutic method you've probably heard of called internal family systems. Yeah. And that alludes to the fact that we have a we have multiple parts. There's a very good book written called No Bad Parts, that we have our manager part, we can have our protector part, we can have exiled parts in the background um, that are often causing havoc in our lives and self-sabotaging us. We can have the part of us that brought us to Jamaica that wants to heal, and that might be in contention with our protector yeah. part that's scared. So that's one element of looking at parts. If you look back at Jungian depth psychology, um, an autonomous complex is a very common thing. So if you ever have a situation where you, in hindsight, you say, oh, I don't know what came over me when I yeah. did that, or what exactly. was I thinking when I did or said that, that's often because an autonomous complex has been activated. The way that autonomous complexes are created within us is every single emotional trauma that we've been through, big and small, um, mm -hmm. has associations. And as soon as that one association gets triggered, it isn't just that one, that one emotional trauma that flares up. They all light up together. And so we get taken over by our emotions in the mm -hmm. moment, right? And we say and do things that we wouldn't normally do with our present conscious mind and awareness available. And so yeah. autonomous complexes in the Jungian sense um, are powerful and need to be worked with as well. Yeah, that's super interesting. And we all do have it. So it's healthy to have this sort of multiple personality notion in inside ourselves. But sometimes it can be a disorder. So essentially a dissociative personality disorder is when those different parts of ourselves are, are taking over our bodies without us controlling it. And that is a really, you know, um, this is a disorder, essentially. This is not normal. But we need to be aware that in the normal psyche, it happens. And the mm. more we are aware of what's going on in the moment, the more we have this opportunity to not necessarily even control it, but somehow get into agreement with different parts of ourselves and therefore have a more fulfilling life. Yeah. And, and all of this tends to arise out of disassociation, but I don't mean disassociation just in the clinical understanding of disassociation. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously, you know, it's very clear that there are varying degrees and, and severity of disassociation. They arise out of trauma and a whole variety of other reasons as well. And, um, you know, when we forget something, right, and we're trying to make an association towards something that we've just forgotten and we can't associate, you can see that as a temporary form of disassociation. When you're in the car as a passenger and you're daydreaming, that's a form of disassociation. So it comes in varying degrees of severity. Um, but I wanted to address disassociation in a more broad term because we, we all do it all the time and it's part of the human experience to some degree yeah thank you for that this 
has been so interesting. We went deep, <laughs> as always okay. happens. Before we finish, I wanted to uh, get back a little bit to the theme of having a retreat with psilocybin mm. versus with other substances. What can you say about the differences or pros and cons of having psilocybin retreat versus something else? Okay, so most of the research, the weight of the research up until now has been around MDMA and mm -hmm. psilocybin. So a lot of that efficacy and safety and the therapeutic methods around how you work with it have been developed and proven. Um, so when you're looking at other psychedelics, uh, classic psychedelics, such as um, NNDMT, which is the core molecule in ayahuasca, 5-MeO-DMT, which um, is now being synthesized, but originally comes from the Sonoran Desert Toad, when you're looking at other um, uh, psychedelics such as LSD, research is happening around all of those right now. Um, but at the core, they all seem to have some impact on resetting the default mode network. And I think mm -hmm. that's where the, the bulk of the weight of the work uh, truly begins. Um, what I would say is that I don't know enough about the research around uh, ayahuasca, DMT, and 5-MeO and LSD. Um, I think a lot more research has to be done yet. What I like about psilocybin, say, even versus ketamine, you know, if you're considering psilocybin versus ketamine, um, psilocybin has this transdiagnostic advocacy. It hits many mental health issues. Um, it seems to me that the outcomes for psilocybin for depression are longer lasting and better outcomes than ketamine. And we know that because we look at the research, but we also know it because um, we have longitudinal surveys that we do with all of our guests. So before they arrive, we ask them mm -hmm. to fill out rating scales for depression, anxiety, alcohol use disorder, PTSD. And then after they've left retreat, we follow up on that same survey at month one, three, six, nine, and 12. And so as we look at our 12-month data, we are seeing very clinically significant um, reductions in or complete eradication of depression and PTSD mm -hmm. symptomology as well as anxiety as well. So I can point to our own research and that matches at least the efficacy of what's happening in research trials, if not better. And mm -hmm. I'd say that um, whereas a research trial has to work with one condition, like this one individual with depression but doesn't have any more comorbidities, um, that's not really representative of mental health in society as a whole, one person with one condition. Our data sets are very representative because most of our guests come with a myriad of different mental health issues and other issues going on in life as well. So mm -hmm. um, for, for me, the reason why I work with psilocybin and not with ayahuasca and other um, psychedelics is because this is where our experience is. And from my perspective, it's validated by the research. It seems to have the most efficacy across a broad swathe of mental health conditions. Yeah. Thank you, Justin. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners, maybe those who are thinking about doing a retreat like that? Mm. A few things that I hear quite commonly is that before I came to Micah Meditations, I was very scared. I was on the fence, but then I went to TripAdvisor and found all of your testimonials. And I read every single one of them at least once, if not twice. And so we're very proud of that. Um, we have over 240 uh, reviews of which 99% of them are five-star reviews. And they're long testimonials. So, so our guests tend to find their own stories before they get here. Mm -hmm. um, reciprocated in those testimonials. The other thing I hear is often when there's one member of a, of a romantic relationship here, like the wife is here, the husband's behind, the conversation before they come is, I really hope that you won't change too much while you're there. 
and that you will still want me when you return. So mm-hmm. I can just assure those people that psilocybin on the whole generally deepens and enriches those relationships. I think some of those fears are normal, um, but we don't get to see them bear that kind of fruit at all. It's very, very productive for couples and relationships. And if you are fearful and nervous, educate yourself, speak with our team members. Um, you'll be very well supported down here. And look, this is one week out of your entire life. It can be an absolute game changer. Um, many of our guests report it as being the most profound experience of their lives. Um, please give it due consideration for yourself. Now I want to come. <laughs> <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Justin, for such an insightful, interesting and deep conversation. Best of luck with my meditations and thank you. Thank you, Natalia. It's a pleasure being on your show. Thank you.